are clearly soldiers in petty coats and dauntless crusaders for women's votes. Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. Mrs. Banks! Cast off the shackles of yesterday. Shoulder to shoulder and to the fray. Come on, writer. Our daughters, daughters will adore us. And they'll sing in grateful chorus. Well done! Silly part I know. This was the first time I got to see vivid in color what I'd only ever seen in black and white photos the suffrage movement, you know, as a child to know that Mary Poppins was exposing us to such important history. Jane and Michael Banks's mom comes marching into the living room on Cherry Tree Lane emblazoned with her sash. I mean, it was it was exciting. It was such a pivotal moment in my experience of her as a character who was mostly up until that point seeming to really represent a lot of traditional and stereotypical kind of behaviors, which is why I felt like I fell in love with Mary Poppins so much because she was so much more bolder and beyond that. But then in comes the Banks's mom and think about how many kids were being educated in this way and just having that image and that representation yeah, that was so critical. Right over my head. <laughs> I was like, cool sash. <laughs> That's all I got. I, I skipped immediately I mean, to supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Well, that's definitely the one I actually really memorized, of course. But if you Google these other lyrics, later, Mrs. Banks sings, Womankind arise, political equality and equal rights with men. Take heart, for Mrs. Pankhurst has been clapped in irons again. You know, so this is interesting because while this song was brought to us by the all-American Walt Disney Company, this was not an American suffrage anthem. You know, this, this was about our sisters in arms across the pond, the British suffragettes. Right, right. Fun fact... Suffragette is a word that comes out of England, and you don't use it to describe women's voting rights activists stateside. Why? Because it's actually kind of derogatory here. If you think about it, suffragist suddenly made into a sweet, adorable woman who wants to have equal rights. She's a little suffragette. I never even noted the difference. I Mm. I feel like I was just hearing the same word, but I get it. Don't et me. Don't et me. (laughs) Oh, oh. And that Mrs. Pankhurst, she was the founder of the Women's Social and Political Union, the group that became the driving force in British suffrage for nearly two decades. It also would influence militant socialist suffrage activism around the world, well before you or I sang along to Mary Poppins. I just learned a lot. Thank you, Rosario. You're very welcome. Thank you, Mary Poppins. I'm Rosara Dawson. And I'm Retta. And this is And Nothing Less. Episode 5, Sister Suffragette, the fight for the vote around the world. So if you remember in 2011, after the Egyptian revolution, people credited social media as both the spark and the accelerant for social change. Facebook and Twitter made it easy for everyday revolutionaries to organize with speed and inspire with ease. It would be easy then to assume that social movements like suffrage in the 19th and early 20th century would be small and insular. I mean, women's rights activists didn't have social media or any of the benefits of digital technology we have today. But it wasn't as provincial as you'd think. In reality, the U.S. women's suffrage movement was international from the start. 
When the women convene at Seneca Falls, their demands for women's rights are not written in a bubble. You can see direct links to calls for human rights made by revolutionaries in Europe, the French West Indies, Mexico, and of course by Native tribes in America. So how did all this information get around? Ellen Du Bois is a research professor at UCLA and the author of Suffrage, Women's Long Battle for the Vote. She concedes that early in suffrage history, in the middle of the 1800s, travel and the sharing of information wasn't as easy as it is now, but ideas still flowed. There were relatively quick ships. So it was via newspapers and letters that people got their information. And so within three or four weeks, they might know of something. So from our point of view, if we start in 1848, the women who led the Seneca Falls Convention were quite well informed about the international environment. And the international environment on the one side meant that they knew a lot about what we call the revolutions of 1848. These are democratic revolutions, that is to say, popular revolutions seeking to create the basis of a democratic franchise France, Italy, Germany, and other places. Reading international news gave many Americans the ability to compare and contrast political styles and states. If we stick with 1848 as an example, we know that for the most part, women and men of color did not have the right to vote across the U.S., but it was still ahead of most countries in the world in terms of democratic voting rights. This is because most countries restricted voting based on property ownership. In the U.S., however, virtually all white men could vote regardless of whether or not they owned property. Du Bois's assessment? This was really the cutting edge of democracy. By contrast, she looks south to Latin America. About the time of the Seneca Falls Convention, all of northern Mexico becomes part of the United States. It's a very crucial development for what's going on in Seneca Falls because that land accession, which increases the landmass of the United States, throws a grenade into American politics because the compromises that had been established to keep the issue of slavery out of national politics only applied to the prior territories of the United States, especially those of the Louisiana Purchase. And that meant that all of this land, which would go from California to Texas to Colorado, was open territory for political battles. And this sets the stage very quickly for a dramatic revolution in American party politics which means that national politics and the right to vote become crucial to the issue that's so important to these women, which is the future of whether slavery will exist. This grenade, as Ellen Bois calls it, gets thrown into American politics a mere six years after the Seneca Falls Convention. So that's 1854. The issue of slavery breaks open the country, and suffragists were determined to take political action. This desire to be political created deep international connections that would continue to grow, and the technology enabled it. The first transatlantic telegraph lines were constructed in the 1860s, during American Reconstruction and the birth of transnational communications, travel, and print culture. The 1880s and early 1900s saw the birth of world organizations in temperance, peace, and suffrage. 
You had the World's Women's Christian Temperance Union, founded by Frances Willard, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, founded by Jane Addams, and the International Women's Suffrage Alliance, founded by Carrie Chapman Catt, all in partnerships with allies around the world. Women were traveling and communicating internationally to share ideas about civil rights, human trafficking, equal pay for equal work, arbitration, marriage rights, and of course, voting. The World's Women's Christian Temperance Union, which was the international arm of the American group we've heard about, would become the largest of the international women's organizations with over 40 national affiliates. That was the first organization concerned with the condition of women that really had global outreach. And its outreach was primarily to the East. It was influential in Japan and elsewhere in the East. The connection between the WCTU and suffrage can't be overstated, according to historians. And its leader, Frances Willard. She takes this connection between suffrage and temperance to the next level. I should say that the connection between temperance and women's suffrage was a direct one. The essence of it was that drinking, alcoholism, was primarily a condition of men. It meant domestic violence and economic deprivation within the family. Frances Willard is able to convince her organization, this is not radical women who have forged their political skills in the radical anti-slavery movement. This is an organization made up of very conventional Protestant small town women. And she is able to convince this organization to go on record in support of women's rights to vote. It's the first really national organization which takes suffrage from a small radical movement to really the beginning of a mass movement of women. For example, The WCTU is credited with the world's first national suffrage victory in New Zealand in 1893. They led a campaign of petitions, lectures, debates, editorials, and even sometimes cricket matches. Temperance Club members were also active in education, fair pay, and women's health. Although groups like these spoke of global sisterhood, their membership was usually segregated with white branches and colored branches. The politics were also rather conservative, but all this would change. That's right. We're talking feminists in just a minute. On and nothing less. back on this history while in the middle of a pandemic. And I don't know about you, but when I'm putting on my mask to go drop packages at my mail spot, this all feels really far away. Yeah, a lot has changed in 100 years. And I'm not so sure the suffragists could have imagined a world where being a humanitarian involved not hugging. Well, you know, actually, we probably should not be forgetting that just two years before women secure the right to vote, the world was facing another pandemic. That was the 1918 Spanish flu, which infected one-third of the world's population. The impact was devastating. More than 50 million people died worldwide, and over 600,000 died here in the United States. But that led to unexpected social changes, especially for women. 
1918 flu crisis, which is very much similar to our own, this global crisis really shaped the way that the 19th Amendment was passed. Alison Lang is a professor at the Wentworth Institute of Technology. It first came to the United States in a major wave in the fall of 1918. It's September 30th, 1918, when Woodrow Wilson addresses the Senate, asking them to endorse suffrage. And it's the week later that the Speaker of the House falls ill. In response, the nation's capital shuts down. You can imagine it having experienced something similar today. And obviously, this wouldn't mean quick progress for any legislation. But women were mobilized in response to the flu crisis, which had a disproportionate impact on young men. To put it in perspective, look at World War I. That ended just as the flu was at its worst in November of 1918. The war killed around 17 million. That's only a third of the flu deaths. More American soldiers died from the flu than in battle. Women were nurses on a large scale. Um, a lot of them had been nurses in World War I and came back to the United States and continued to do so. They were caregivers for their family, but also many of them were enlisted to work more professionally. Another component is that during World War I, the American Red Cross did not deploy women of color to be nurses overseas. But because of the crisis in 1918, they did call up women of color to be nurses, which by breaking that barrier, they were allowed to be included in future American Red Cross initiatives. So that was a really important shift in the nursing profession for women of color. By 1920, women made up 21% of the workforce. While this gender boost is often credited to World War I alone, women's increased presence in the workforce would have been far less pronounced without the 1918 flu pandemic. And that was something the public and politicians couldn't ignore, says writer Elaine Weiss. It makes the old arguments about women's frailty and women's lack of citizenship and patriotism moot. And that's why it really propels things forward. And women have a better sense of themselves. It convinces a lot of women who did not support suffrage before. Now, suddenly, they've taken on a job. They've taken on public service in many different ways. And they realize that they do want a say in how their nation is governed. So here we are in a new century, and the SUFs are welcoming more modern and international politics. You're starting to see the word feminist, and political women are reading about the 1917 Russian Revolution, fair labor, and socialism. A wave of social democratic and labor parties in Europe would contribute to women's movements, and Americans took note. Alice Paul, who would become one of the most famous suffrage protesters, was very attentive to international movements, she was first inspired to join the suffrage cause while in graduate school in England. In 1907, she caught a lecture by a daughter of our sister suffragette, Mrs. Emmeline Pankhurst. A week later, at a suffrage march in Hyde Park in London, she heard calls for votes for women, echoed by bugles and saw colorful banners and flags. She was hooked. It was not all rah-rah for women, however. Suffragists were regularly hit with stones and abused. Paul and others were repeatedly arrested and mistreated. And to protest this, they went on hunger strikes and eventually were brutally force-fed by prison guards. The stories of these horrors would reach Americans. Here again, historian and author Ellen Du Bois. 
In the early 20th century, the British suffrage movement takes off like a rocket. It starts out in the northern part of the country, in the mill towns uh, and the manufacturing towns of the north of England. The popular basis of it are women workers. They draw on some of the energies of the labor movement in England, which is quite radical, and they conduct these what they call monster parades. And they are unlike anything that's ever been seen. And they absolutely are covered in the international press. There are Americans, lots of them, who go to England and learn what's going on. Carrie Chapman Catt, Anna Howard Shaw, even African-American women, a woman named Sarah Garnett. She's the second wife of a man named Henry Highland Garnett, who's one of the great figures of the abolitionist movement. And she goes to England and brings back information about this exciting set of new developments. It's not possible to overstate the influence of this development on the American movement. It generates a militant, to use the word of the period, a militant wing of the suffrage movement, which cannot find a place for itself in the suffrage mainstream. And it is this movement that conducts the militant tactics that is a lot of what we know about in the final years of suffrage. Alice Paul returns to the United States in 1910 after her final imprisonment in London. She needed to recover. While in jail, Paul was force-fed daily. It was almost 50 times during her prison stay. And she was also driven to further the suffrage effort at home, armed with tools she learned overseas. She and others conduct these massive parades. She's responsible for the 1913 Washington, D.C. parade, which is an imitation of the British parade. And then in 1917, when the United States goes to war, they're not supporting the American entry into the war. Maybe you've seen photos of women standing in front of the White House gates? Well, those 1917 silent sentinels, as they were called, are part of one of the most famous events in suffrage history. They did it first. They literally invented protesting in front of the White House. Love it. So inspiring. One of their signs read, Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? President Wilson was initially uninterested, but still these picketers, organized by the National Woman's Party, came back six days a week, no matter the weather, for almost a year. That's right. That's how you do it. Once the U.S. entered World War I, this kind of hostility in front of the White House lawn was seen as unpatriotic. But the NWP didn't stop. And for many months, they were arrested and faced violence. More than 150 women went to jail. And more women went on hunger strikes, including their leader, Alice Paul. And again, they were force-fed. But with news of this, on top of reports of women being beaten, choked, and kicked in prison, public opinion was on the side of the suffragists. And just a few months after the Silent Sentinels protest, President Wilson and Congress would send the U.S. into World War I. What would this mean for women and the vote? Well, just look at what was happening around the world. 
In the years leading up to our entry into the war, European and other North American countries had already been in the fight. And many of those women also got the right to vote. Denmark, Russia, Canada, Austria, Germany, Poland, and England, all passing voting laws between the years 1915 and 1918. Yes, unfortunately, it's true that the war did advance the cause of suffrage. That's journalist Elaine Weiss, author of The Woman's Hour. In 1916, Woodrow Wilson campaigned for re-election on the slogan, he kept us out of war. So he reluctantly enters the war and the suffragists see this happening. And so the Americans have been watching their French and German and all the European countries that are drawn into the, what's called the Great War, we call World War I now, and especially the British suffragists who very much a sister movement to America, very much moving in parallel. And there are even the radical suffragists give up the suffrage fight to commit themselves to war work, to helping their nation get through the war. Three years later, when America is being drawn in Carrie Catt sees this coming and makes a decision, a a really painful decision for her. She is a pacifist. She at first opposes any entry of America into this bloody war. She and Jane Addams uh, of Hull House of Chicago found something called the Women's Peace Party to advocate uh, that America stay out of the war, stay neutral. But what she realizes when things are getting hot and it's going to be harder and harder for America not to enter the war, she sees that the cause of suffrage will be advanced if American suffragists pledge their help to the nation. Even though Kat is a pacifist, she eventually has to make a painful moral compromise. If she wants to further the cause of suffrage, she knows she has to publicly pledge that she and her two million supporters will get behind the war and get behind the country. If she publicly pledges that American women will not give up their their quest for suffrage, but will put it behind the importance of war work, or at least put it equally, that this will strengthen the hand of the suffrage cause in Congress. Remember, the federal amendment's been sitting there for 40 years and they can't get it out. And so she makes this very, very painful decision to pledge the loyalty and the work of the 2 million women of the National American Association to the suffrage cause. And this is a big, big decision. President Wilson trumpets it. This is uh, important to him. Alice Paul says no. We are not going to support this. And so her National Women's Party never supports World War I. Those pictures of them picketing the White House, their imprisonment, their torture, all takes place while America is fighting in World War I. And those National Women's Party picketers are called not only unpatriotic by the press and by much of the American public, but also traitors because this is done in wartime. Whether or not to support the war tears the movement apart. But once the president and Congress made a decision to commit, the role of women in the country radically changed. American women were working in munitions production, overseeing Liberty loan fundraisers and food conservation efforts. 
the decision of some suffragists to focus on the needs of the nation proved to only further their cause. The arguments used by male politicians for so long that women don't deserve the vote because they're not strong enough, they're not smart enough, they're not mentally capable of making these hard decisions. When women have been serving in the war effort in ways they'd never served before, they're in the mines, they're in the factories, they've taken over the fields and the women's land army, they are running the, the streetcars, they're doing things that were considered men's work and were vital for them to take over. So it gets really hard for a male politician to spout out these ideas that you know women are just too fragile and nervous and hysterical to be able to vote. And this is, was Carrie Katz's calculation, and she was very right. And so you saw a real change in public attitudes towards women. You also saw changes in attitude toward the president, who said that the world must be safe for democracy. He had to respond to people who asked, how safe is democracy at home when half the citizens can't participate? So it's no coincidence that everything starts moving. The, the amendment passes Congress, goes to the states right after we exit World War I. Just a month before the war ended, and almost exactly one year after the first picketers took their posts outside the gates of the White House, the president finally gave his support to women voting. We have made partners of the women in this war, he said. Shall we admit them only to a partnership of suffering and sacrifice and toil and not to a partnership of privilege? He knew this would be heard at home and around the world. So even though 2020 is a year to look at an American suffrage anniversary, don't think of the history of women's right to vote as a national story, says Du Bois. Think of it as a global story. The women's rights movement and the women's suffrage movement and feminism have always been global movements. In the United States, we talk about waves of feminism. I've tried to pursue that metaphor. And waves aren't discrete things. They are movements of energy through bodies of water. So if we think of the waves of an ocean, uh, we can imagine that that after lapping up on the shores of the United States, those waves of motion continue elsewhere. So in my experience, the feminist movement moves about the world and, and never dies. But at times, for instance, in our country, where uh, feminism has seemed to have been on the quiet, um, at the same time, those energies have moved to other countries and other nations and they will come back to us. Next time, World War I is over, but the suffrage fight is not. Tennessee could be the pivotal last state, or it could be the beginning of the end of the momentum, and, and the suffragists might have to wait who knows how long. I'm Retta. And I'm Rosario Dawson. Thanks for listening. This was And Nothing Less from the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission, the National Park Service, and PRX. This podcast was envisioned by WSCC Executive Director Anna Lehman with support from Kelsey Millay. 
The production team is executive producer Genevieve Sponsler, producer and audio engineer Samantha Gatsik, and writer and producer Robin Lynn. Original score by Erica Wong, with additional music from Epidemic Sound. The historical content used to create these stories was brought to you by the National Park Service. Teachers can download companion lesson plans at go.nps.gov slash suffrage podcast. For even more suffrage history, visit the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission at womensvote100.org. and I'm the host of a new podcast for the whole family called The Magic Sash. Join me, Lottie, and Isaiah on a time-traveling adventure to learn about the fight for women's right to vote. It's a story about people demanding their voices be heard. Listen to The Magic Sash wherever you find your podcasts.